Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit OutreachChurch.net for downloads and service information. My name is Roy. I'm the pastor here at Outreach Church. Um, we're really thankful that you're here. We really are. Um, we started talking last week about this idea of covenant with God, and, and really it was born from a, a thing where I was just just kind of, I don't know if you'd say grieved, but just feeling like, man, there's something that we don't see in God's commitment to us, or, or we would have a greater commitment to each other. If we understand this covenant, if we had a better picture of what this is, because really there's no example in the world of the covenant relationship we have with God. The closest example we have is marriage, and that's become almost disposable. It's getting redefined and pulled and torn. And so we're going to teach through the whole thing of covenant. That And we started talking about Abram last week. And and we're going to go through all the steps of covenant. Do you guys know that, that most of the things that you did in your wedding ceremony come from covenant ceremony? You didn't even realize most of them a lot when you were doing them a lot of times. But most of the things you did in your wedding ceremony were echoing the covenant ceremony. And, and so we talked about, um, we talked about God and uh, calling Abram out of Haran. And you know, we, if you weren't here last week, you should listen to the podcast. It was, we were talking about the fact that his father set for the promised land of Canaan, but settled in Haran and how he ended up there and, and what that looked like. But open your Bibles up to uh, Genesis chapter 15, if you have them. God's talking to Abraham and he's talking about, you know, these things that he's going to do for him and who he wants to be for him and and he's he's having this conversation with uh with Abraham and then Abram goes and does these things actually Abram I'm going to say Abram and Abraham I talked about that last week I I wish God would have changed his name from Abram to Steve It'd been so much easier to keep, you know, keep them straight, but he didn't. It's Abram to Abraham. So if I say Abram or Abraham just realize I'm talking about the same guy um, oh, we need to take up our offering. Yeah, that's right. Somebody to signal from the back. They have theirs ready to go. So we're going to do that real quick because we want to give everyone an opportunity to sow. It's not, uh, we have to do this. It's an opportunity. We get to give. It's a joy. It's a pleasure. We're excited that we have something to give. Um, and we believe that, that pouring into this house so that this house can be a blessing to our community is an amazing place for us to sow our finances and resources. So thank you, God, for blessing your people. God, I thank you that we're blessed to be a blessing, that, that everything we receive from your hand, God, goes through us and, and is for us, but it's also for others. And I thank you that, that you, you give us more than we need so that we can meet the needs of other people. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, that's God's idea for us to be blessed so that we can be a blessing. You know, He's not in heaven with lack. He's not in heaven experiencing an economic downturn. That He's not. He really isn't. He's not, he doesn't even know what lack is besides when He saw it in His children and He made a promise that they would never lack, that they would never need, that they would never want and go without. Never have I seen the righteous starving or His descendants begging for bread. That's a promise of God. I, the Lord God, take delight in the prosperity of my servants. That's the God that we serve, saying that He actually takes delight in us prospering as we serve Him. That there's something in our lives that should provoke the world to jealousy. And I'm not making this all about finances, you guys. There should be a joy in our lives that the world wants what you have. There should be a peace in our lives that the world wants what we have. 
But let's not exclude money because it was abused for a while. Let's not take what, what, what got abused in the, in the prosperity gospel that made everything simply about money and throw that out and throw the baby out with the bathwater just because it went a little overboard in some teachings and made everything about financial blessing. Let's not toss that and lose that in the process and remember that God Himself actually said these things and that He has a plan to provide and protect if we would just trust and obey. That's the covenant He's made with man. It always has been. One of His names is the God who provides. Just think about that. If He's the God who provides, then there should be something in our lives that proves that He is who He says He is. Anyways, so last week we started talking about Abram. We're in Genesis 15. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he, God, said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid, the half, laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go forth to your father in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I've given this land. From the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and the Kenite and the Kenizzite, and the Cadmonite and the Hittite, and the Perizzite and the Raphaim, and the Amorite and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that we have a written record of, of your speech, God, of what you said as you began and instituted this great covenant. God, I thank You that that as we hear from Your Word, as we talk and teach from Your Word, Holy Spirit, that You speak through me. That the words that I say wouldn't be mine, but they would be from the heart of the Father straight to my lips. That our ears would be open to understand. That our minds would... That we have the mind of Christ that we would be able to comprehend. that, That our hearts would be good soil. That we would receive Your Word, God. That we would receive all that You have for us. That it would be good soil, God, in our hearts. That it would produce fruit. That a world that doesn't know You would taste and see that You're good by the fruit of our lives as we're being changed more and more every day into the image of Your Son. 
That we look more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. And that tomorrow we'll look more like Him than we do today. I thank You for that. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, so God's talking to Abraham and He says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. I want us to understand that the covenant is A, God's idea, and B, it, it, the purpose of it is God wanting to draw and bind Himself to His people and His people to bind themselves to Him. And the promise of the covenant is blessing. The co- promise of the covenant is that there will be poured out on Him a blessing that will, it will take a descendancy as, as big as the stars in the sky for Him to be able to contain it. And so God starts speaking to Abram. And the first thing Abram, He says, do not fear, Abram. You don't understand, whenever God's talking to us, there's always this thing where I'm speaking to you, so don't fear. And, and when He says don't fear... He says right after that, he usually gives the reason why we shouldn't fear. Like, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also me. In other words, if your heart is troubled, it's probably because there's something that you don't believe about me or that you don't believe about the Father. So let not your heart be troubled. Why? Because you believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, if your heart's feeling troubled right now, it's because there's something about him that we either don't understand, my people perish for lack of knowledge, or we don't believe. And so he says, Abram, don't be afraid. You're, I, I am a shield to you. In other words, Abram, never again do you have the right to be afraid in your life because I, the Lord God, am going to be your shield. Never again is it okay. It is now illegal for Abraham to ever be afraid once God has promised that He will be His shield. He says, your reward shall be very great. And I love Abram's response. We, we talked about this a tiny bit last week. But Abram's response when he hears that he's going to get this great reward from God is, O Lord, what will You give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram's immediate response is, okay, God, but if You're going to bless me, I need somebody to pass the blessing to. He doesn't say, what will you give me? And then wait for the answer. He says, well, what are you going to give me as this great reward? Because I don't see a way that anything that you give me can go beyond me. I have no legacy. I don't even have an heir. Someone who was born in my house that's not even my son, he's going to take over everything that I have. God, how could you possibly bless me with this huge great reward? when I have nobody to give it to. I think an amazing thing that we could instill into our lives is a principle of when we're blessed by God is to immediately try to understand, okay, but who am I going to share this blessing with? That it's not how am I going to protect and keep and keep everyone away from this blessing? How can I get rich off this? How can I charge for this? How can I do any of this stuff? It's if I receive something from the Father, my first response is thank you God. Who am I going to share this with? You certainly didn't just give this to me for me. So who will I share this with? And, and Abram, be, and I believe that because he says that, because God knew the kind of person he was and that he would say that, God already had the plan in place. And he says to him, the man, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. He took him outside, said, now look towards the heavens and count the, count the stars and be able to count them. Abram's looking for one. God says, you'd be content with one. Step outside for a minute. 
See, in your mind, you're thinking, I just need one person. I need somebody that I can bring into this, this relationship with. I need somebody that I can share this with. And God's saying, listen, Abraham, I know that you would be content with one, but step outside and let me blow your mind for a minute. Because I'm going to do exceedingly abundantly above all you could think or ask. When our heart is in the right position, when our heart is not, oh good, I can get blessed for the sake of me, but our heart is, oh good, I can be blessed so that I can bless other people with this. I believe God says, okay, now step outside and I want to show you something. Because He showed him that after Abraham expressed his heart was that if anything I'm receiving from you, I need to have somebody to share it with. And I think one goes hand in hand with the other and unlocks the other. And then he says, so shall your descendants be. And he says, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? But this is what I want us to look at. Is Look at in verse uh, 5 when he says, and he took him outside and said, now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. It says, then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. It says that when he stepped outside and he saw the stars and he thought about what God was offering him, God didn't show him anything besides the stars and expounds on the reward. He says he doesn't say, well, this is how it's going to happen and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. He just actually says, Abraham's going, I can't comprehend this. I don't even know who I would share this blessing with. And God says, okay, now further beyond that, let me take you outside and let you see just how massive the blessing is that I'm talking about. And so Abraham, it's not as if he stepped outside and God showed himself to him and went, ta-da! And Abraham went, oh, okay. That makes sense. You know, he didn't see a burning bush or, you know, a lot of these things that we see that people did. It wasn't an angel standing out there with a flaming sword or anything like that. He actually brings him outside and shows him something that would further blow his mind and says, you're struggling with not even having one. Now let me show you the stars of the universe. And it says, and Abraham believed in him. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't need to see something that made sense to him to believe God. I think so many times we get hung up on needing to see something that makes sense to our minds before we'll believe Him. It says that he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, when he believed it, the minute that he believed every word that came out of the mouth of the Father, he was reckoned as righteous. And it's the same thing that happens with us. Because Abraham believed the Word of God, he was counted as righteous in right standing, righteous before God. And the same thing with us. Romans says that with, the, with our hearts, we believe unto righteousness. That when we believe, and this is, so this is a type and a foreshadow of the covenant that we will have through Jesus Christ. And it starts with belief. It says the minute that he believed, it was counted to him as righteousness. What did he believe? He just believed that God was who he said he was and that he would do what he said he would do. How do we become born again in Jesus? We believe that God is who he says he is and that he did what he said he would do and that he will do what he said he's going to do. Because with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. With the mouth, he confesses unto salvation. So the minute that we actually believe, something changes in our standing before God and it's counted to us as righteousness the same way it was with Abraham. And it didn't have to make sense to Abraham's mind. And I love the order that this is in. Because then, after he believes God, then he says, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? 
I love that he didn't say first, oh Lord God, how will I know that I may possess it? And God say, okay, this, 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 and this. And then Abraham believed. It says that he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And after he believes and it's counted to him as righteousness, then he says, okay God, well how am I going to know? There's, and God doesn't like, oh, let me fix my thing. I'm going to get a little slack. It keeps wanting to ride down. God doesn't rebuke him. God doesn't say, Abraham, you, you, you man of little faith. And I remember when the disciples wake him up in the boat and they say, don't you care that we're going to drown? They get rebuked. Oh, you of little faith. But when Abraham says, God, how will I know that I will possess it? He doesn't get rebuked. In fact, God answers him and explains himself to him. Why? It's because the place that it was coming from, Abraham was asking out of belief. God, I believe. How can I know? The disciples were talking out of unbelief. Don't you care that we're going to die when Jesus didn't say anything about going in the boat and dying. He said about getting in the boat and going to the other side. Their unbelief caused them to go to Him and ask Him a question. It's okay to go to God out of the belief that we have in Him and say, okay, God, I believe You. I just need to know how. God, how will I know that this is going to happen? God, how, God, I believe that you've called me to this. I'm all in. I believe. I put my faith in this. I'm resting my life and I'm betting my life upon this. I just need to know from you. That doesn't offend God. It doesn't bother God. And he answers and responds to him. It's when it's from a place of unbelief saying, God, if you will show me, then I will believe. Not God, I believe. Will you show me? And this is what Abraham does. See, he gets it right. He believes first. Then he says, okay, from a place of belief, God, I believe You. How will I know? Not God, how will I know so that I can believe You? If we're not careful, we'll get caught up in only believing the things that God's spoken something to show us the answer to before we actually believe. But the problem with that is that we read in Hebrews, it says, now he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. In other words, you have to come to Him seeking Him and asking your questions and seeking things out from Him from a place of believing what He's already spoken before He's going to reveal more to you. Not from a place of saying, well, God, if You'll just do this, then I'll believe. Why? Because Jesus said, Thou shalt not put your Lord God to the test. The only place that we're ever told to test Him in is with our finances and trusting Him with tithing and giving. That's it. So, so Abram says, I believe. How will I know? God answers him. and says, go get me a cow, a goat, a ram, and some birds. Abram says, okay, you're God. I'm, I'm dialoguing with you, so I obviously believe that you're real. It's always kind of made me laugh a little bit when people who are speaking to God question His reality. Like, Gideon's talking to an angel going, I don't know. Prove it. I want to believe that if an angel appeared to me, like full-on appeared to me, knew my name, and started speaking to me, I probably wouldn't need a fleece to get wet. Right? Like, that could be my fleece maybe. 
Like maybe that could be my sign that there's an angel standing before me knowing my name and speaking things over me that would take faith for me to believe. But Gideon did it. Abraham does it. And he says, how will I know? And God says, go get me a goat, a cow, a ram, and two birds. And Abraham instantly would have known what that meant. See, if God said that to us, we would think we're going to have a party, or we're going to have dinner, or open a petting zoo, or, you know, like, it wouldn't mean the same thing to us that it did to him, but Abraham instantly knew, oh my, we're going to make covenant. He knew exactly why he was getting the animals. It says, then he brought them before him and he split them in two. God didn't tell him to split them in two. He knew what he was doing. He knew this is a covenant. And what you did in a covenant was you would gather these animals together and they would split them right down the middle. And it was gruesome, bloody work, right? Like this was, this was, you know, this was happening in real time. Like we have these pictures in our head sometimes of, of what these things look like and we fail to realize like the reality of it is if you split an animal in half, everything that is in the animal comes rushing to the center of where you're standing. It's not like pretty. It's not refrigerated and frozen. It's in the desert. There's flies. It's, it's hot. And, and there's blood everywhere. And so Abraham gets these animals and he splits them. And what they would do is they would split the animals down the middle and they would arrange the halves to where they were facing each other. And they did it, and I believe, and, and I can't prove this, but I believe the reason why God gave him the order that he gave him, and he would have split them and laid them out in the order that he did, was it was from the biggest animal to the smallest animal. And so you would have had these giant rib cages of the cow sticking up on the sides of each, and the blood would run down to the center, and there would be a path of blood running between the two halves of the sacrifice, and they would pass through them, and they called that the walls of blood. And I believe the reason why he laid them out in the way that he did was because God was showing him from the greatest to the smallest, I'll walk with you through everything. From the greatest to the smallest, we're in covenant. And once we're in covenant together, it doesn't matter if it's a huge thing or if it's a little thing. Even little birds that aren't split in half, the smallest animals he could get his hands on. From the greatest thing to the smallest thing, Abram, I'm not ashamed, I'm not afraid, and I will walk with, it, with you through everything that you face. There's nothing insignificant in your life to God. There's nothing that's too big for God. And everything in between He cares about. He knows about. He's intimately aware of where you're at right now in your life. He's intimately aware of what's going on. He's intimately aware of the, the questions and decisions and the things you hold in your heart. Not because He's up in heaven looking for something wrong to judge you, but because He loves you so much that He wants to know you intimately. You know, we talked about that like... Sometimes I just stare at my wife. And sometimes when people stare at us, we get aware. You know, we start checking our nose or, you know, wondering if there's something in our eye. Or, and then we start thinking about, like, the things that we see wrong with us. You know, like, well, maybe she's looking at my big nose. And, you know, or maybe it's my big lips. Or, or what are they looking at? And we're always aware sometimes of things that are wrong. And sometimes I just stare at my wife and she'll say, what? And she'll hide her face. And she'll do this and she'll ask me if there's something in her nose. There's never been something in her nose in the 16 years that I've known her. Seriously. I don't know how. It's 
<laughs> it's freakish that there's never once been anything. And she still asks. It's okay to laugh in church, you guys. And, um, and I've had to tell her that many times over and over again. Hannah, I'm not looking at you because I see something wrong. I'm looking at you because I love you. Because you're the most beautiful thing in this world to me. I see everything right. I'm not looking for flaws. I wouldn't see them if they were there. Because of who you are to me. And that's God. He's not trying to find the flaw. He doesn't see the flaw. Jesus dealt with that. He's staring at you because He sees what's right. He's staring at you because He loves you. He thinks you're beautiful. You're His child. He created you to love you, to know you. He's intimately aware. It doesn't matter if it's the biggest thing you've ever faced in your life or it feels like the smallest thing. He's aware. And He'll walk through it with you. So Abraham lays these things out. He understands that God's about to make covenant with man. This is like a huge deal. This is the biggest deal. It's not a light thing. It's not a small thing. It's not a trivial thing. It's not something that God's doing as an after effect. This is the God of the universe forever binding Himself to humanity and forever binding humanity to Himself because as they passed through the walls of blood, what they would say was, let it be done to me as was done to these animals if I don't keep every word of the covenant. And so God tells Abraham to split the animals in half and He splits them in half and He lays them out and then He waits and it says, and the birds of the air came to try to devour, but Abraham drove them away. I promise you, when you lay something out before God as a sacrifice to Him, the enemy will come. The birds there is always a symbol of the enemy. And what you've committed to God and what you've sacrificed to God, the enemy's always going to come and try to steal. And I love what Abraham did. He didn't say, God, they're trying to take your sacrifice. It says, Abraham drove them off. So what is the model for us in the new covenant? Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Abraham is walking that out live for us. He's submitted to God. The only reason he's splitting these animals in half is because God told him to. The only reason the sacrifice is there is because God called him to sacrifice him. So he's submitting himself to God. And once he knows that what I'm doing is submitting myself to God and that this is what he's called me to do, when the enemy comes to try to steal the sacrifice, it says he drives them off. He resists them. And the enemy has to flee. Sometimes the lack of conflict in our lives is because we're doing nothing that the enemy cares to try to scare us away from. There's a place of peace in Him, but there's not, that doesn't promise a lack of conflict. Sometimes the whole reason why we have to actually resist the devil is because we're submitted to God. That if our lives aren't submitted to Him and doing what He's called us to do, we run into very little that we have to resist sometimes. Now that becomes a bad gauge. Don't think just because there is resistance it means that you must be doing what God wants you to do. Sometimes there's resistance because you're doing what God hasn't called you to do. The only way to know is if you're submitted to Him. 
Because that's the most important first step. Submit yourself to God. Once you're submitted to Him, then when something comes against it, you know that you have to resist it because it's the enemy and there's a promise that He has to flee. So here's Abraham, the foreshadow, the father of faith, playing out in real life. Resisting the, submitting himself to God, resisting the devil and him having to flee. It says, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Matthew 27, verse 45 says, Now that from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks split. When God makes covenant with man, darkness comes down upon the earth and the rocks shake and it's earth shattering. It's a huge deal. The earth itself can't even stay still as God is making covenant. And this is about what is about to happen. And Abram doesn't have any idea of what's going on and the magnitude of this thing. He just knows that he's entering into covenant with God. He doesn't see the day that Jesus will hang on a cross and bring a new covenant that was authored in faith by God through Abraham that we could actually live in and enjoy. He just thinks he's going to make covenant with God. So God comes... It says, when Abraham awoke, he saw that God had come in a pillar of smoke and in fire, and he passed through the pieces. And this is what God is saying. God is saying, let it be done to me as was done to these animals if I neglect the covenant that I've made with you, if I ever leave you, if I ever forsake you, if I ever am not who I've promised to be, if I ever break my word, let it be done to me as was done with these animals. And then Abram would normally have got up and passed through. And Abram was probably wondering why God went through first because whenever someone made covenant, the lesser person, if only one was going to pass through, it would be the lesser. Of course it made sense that the lesser person would want to be in covenant with the greater. What didn't make sense was that the greater wanted to be in covenant with the lesser and that the greater actually wasn't requiring the lesser to walk through the path. It's never recorded that Abraham walked through it. And this is what God was doing in that moment. God is passing through as one and then as the other. And He's saying in, this, in, this, in doing that, I will ratify this covenant. I will honor this covenant as God and as man. And let it be done to me if you ever just break the rules of this covenant, if you ever forsake this covenant, I will be, have done to me what was done to these animals. And Abraham would have no idea what God was talking about in that moment. He would have never understood how God could stand and make the promise for God and for man in this covenant and say, let it be done to me as was done to these animals. He would have never been able to understand that. And that's the first time that we see the walls of blood in the Bible. And later, when the Israelites were in Egypt, this same covenant-making God is going to send the angel of death to judge and and kill the firstborn male of of every house. And, And He said to the Israelites, He said, but if you will take the blood of a lamb, a spotless lamb, and you will kill it, you'll put it on the doorpost and you'll put it on the sides. 
and you'll pass through that door into your house, you will be spared and the angel will pass over your house and you won't be judged. And so as they would take the blood and they put it over the lintel and they put it over the mantle and they put it on the sides of the doors, all who passed through those doors once they went inside were safe from judgment. They passed through the walls of blood and they were safe from judgment and judgment passed over them. Well, then we fast forward because everything done in the covenant with Abraham and everything done in the covenant with the Israelites was done in the covenant by Jesus. He fulfilled every bit of covenant and became the curse. He became everything for us. And so here's Jesus hanging on a cross. And they didn't tie His wrists. See, normally they would tie you. They wanted to nail Him. They had no idea why. They thought it was to be cruel. They thought it was to be painful. They thought it was because maybe when he saw the hammer about to drive the spikes, he would finally confess and say, okay, I'm really not him. I've gone as far as I can go with this charade, but that looks pretty painful. And they're thinking that they're going to scare him and intimidate him. And Jesus just lays there because he knows what's coming because he understands what they're doing even though they don't. And they take the man Jesus and they lay him on a cross and they put nails through his wrists and blood pours down on the sides of the wood. They take a crown of thorns and they shove it on his head. That wasn't normal either. They thought they were being cruel. They thought they were mocking him. They said, here's Jesus, King of the Jews. Hail Jesus, King Jesus, you need a crown. And they shove the thorns down into his head and blood pours down from the head. And Jesus, the man who in John chapter 10 said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture, becomes for us the covenant walls of blood as the man who's nailed to the cross has the blood dripping down from the sides and the blood dripping down from the top. And he said, if you want to come into the Father and be in relationship with us, all you have to do is come through me. And what God entered through With Abram, we enter through with Christ. And the new covenant is ratified. Isn't it amazing that God didn't spare one detail, didn't leave out one thing? They think they're being cruel and they don't even understand that they're spreading blood on the door sides of the door. They think they're being cruel and they don't understand that they're spreading blood on the top of the door. And they think they're being cruel by killing Him. And they don't understand that all they're doing is opening forever the door that can never be shut. And so that Jesus could say, all you can come to the Father through Me. And forever making the way. Think about this. You pass through walls of blood. What does it, when a baby comes out of a mother's womb, what do they wipe off of it? Blood. A baby is born into the world and passes through walls of blood and is born into sin. We pass through Jesus, the doorway with blood on the sides and on the post, and are born again into righteousness. Everything that was done is undone through the covenant that God made with us through Jesus. Everything. There's not a detail that's left out. You guys have been to a wedding? When you walk in, 
What do they ask you? What do the people that are ushering ask you? Bride or groom? They separate you. Bride on one side, groom on the other. And you don't even understand why. Most people have no idea why they're separating you. Bride on one side, groom on the other. It's not because people don't like each other and families don't mix. That's a lie. If you believe that lie that you have to hate your in-laws, you'll spend your life being miserable. You don't have to hate your in-laws. In fact, you can actually gain family on that day and you can love your in-laws and you can have more fathers, more mothers, more brothers, more sisters. You don't have to hate your in-laws. They're not the outlaws. See, we give strength to those things though because we have an expectancy that there's going to be problems and so we create an expectancy and then when something goes wrong because inevitably something happens in the course of relationship, we say, well, that's because they're the in-laws. Well, you know how it is dealing with in-laws. Then you get four other people that have bad stories that confirm it and say, oh man, you talk about in-laws? You want to talk about in-laws? And now all of a sudden we're sitting around giving each other excuses and reasons why we should hate each other's families rather than talking about how great they are and how thankful we are for them. So they divide you up, bride and groom. They divide you by blood. On one side, you have the family of the groom, his blood, and the friends of the groom. On the other side, you have the family of the bride, her blood, and the friends of the bride. And then she stands at a door, and somebody says, if they need to, most people know to stand up when the, when the bride stands at the door, but if not, someone says, all rise, and suddenly the walls of blood are raised on either side of the aisle, and she passes through them and walks down and makes covenant with her husband. See, so you thought that they were just dividing you up to make it easier to know who was who. And they may think that, but all the things we do in our wedding ceremony mirror this covenant that we have with the Father and the bride passes through the walls of blood and makes her way down to an altar and makes covenant between God and man. It's not boring. The covenant is the most amazing thing that we have. It's why the Bible is divided into Old Covenant. Testament is another word for covenant. Old Covenant and New Covenant. If we understand this covenant, it will change the way that we relate to the Father and it will change the way we relate to each other. Because if the Father desires covenant relationship with us, and if Jesus came to create covenant relationship with us, and then said, as the Father sent me into the world, so also I send you, chances are we should find ourselves in relationships that are more than just consumer relationships, convenient relationships. See, a consumer relationship is based on you have something that I want or need, and you have either the best price or you're the most convenient, and so we have a relationship based on me getting what I need from you at a convenient, cheap cost. That's a consumer relationship. Then you have covenant relationship like marriage, which is, I'm in this for you. I promise that I will, for the rest of my life, lay down my life for you. I will, everything that I have with all my earthly goods, I thee endow, I will lay my life down, serve, honor, love, protect you all the days of my life. You have covenant relationship here. You have consumer relationship here. And all of our relationships on earth fall somewhere in the middle. If our relationship with the Father is a covenant relationship, and if the relationship He established between people, it's it's okay to have a consumer relationship with a gas station. That's fine. It's not okay with brothers and sisters in Christ that we live life with. And it's not okay with a husband or a wife. Where I'm only interested as long as I get what I want from you for the cheapest and most convenient price. 
And the minute I find somebody else who will give me what I want for cheaper or more conveniently, I'll go to get it from them. That's not okay. If God instituted covenant relationship as His way to deal with and relate to man, and as, a, as man and woman's way to relate to each other, then I would guess more of our relationships on earth should be on this end of the scale than on that end of the scale. And if we understand His commitment to us, it'll make us a whole lot more likely to want to make that commitment to people. Because the reasons we don't commit to people don't stand up if we put them in the mouth of God not relating to us. Well, what if they hurt me? Are you kidding me? He was beaten, crucified, torn apart, ripped in half almost. Pierced through his side. Nails. Thorns. Back opened up. He didn't let what if they hurt me stop him from committing to you. Well, what if I give and give and give and all they do is take? Sounds like someone I know. See, none of the excuses that we use for not having committed relationships with people make any sense in the mouth of God talking about us. And if they did, then we would not have the relationship with them we have. Why do we hold on to the right to not commit ourselves to people based on those very same things? Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that, he would lay down his, that one would lay down his life for his friends. And, you know, we take that, I'm just going to close up with this, but we take that as, you know, giving his life the way Jesus actually died physically and gave his life for us. And it could include that, right? There's people who actually have died to save their friends. But I think a greater part of that is that every single day, just about, we face a decision where we can actually lay down our lives for the right of the people around us. See, Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. In other words, it's not that you're living at my expense and you're taking my life from me and I'm not going to let you take advantage of me. If our heart towards people is the same as Jesus' heart towards us, nobody can take my life from me. I've already laid it down. So you may think you're taking advantage, but you're not because I laid it there for you to take in the beginning. See, this is what Jesus was trying to say is you guys, nobody can take my life from me. Why? Because I've laid it down. I've said, here, take it. Now you're no longer taking my life. You're actually taking what I'm offering. You're not stealing my life. You're not draining me. You're not sucking me dry. You're not using me. You're not leaving me feel like I've just been so used and hurt and discarded because I already laid my life down and said, listen, if there's anything in me that helps you see who you are in Christ, if there's anything in me that will make you understand that God loves you, that He's for you, not against you, and that He sent His Son to die on a cross, if there's anything in my life that is of use to you coming to know who you are in Christ, you can have it. Take it. And you may think that you're taking advantage and all you're doing is taking love. You just don't know it. But He does. And He said, He sees what's done in secret reward and open. He sees why you're laying your life down. He sees why you're sacrificing. He sees why you're giving and giving and giving. And He sees why people are taking and taking and taking. But you don't sometimes. See, sometimes we think that, you know, well, that person just used me. No, they didn't. They didn't. 
Because anything that you've done that resembles the heart of the Father and done out of love for them will not return void. It will make a difference in their life, even if you never get to see it. You may not see the day 30 years later that the thing that you did and the thing that so many people did but it comes to fruition and they actually understand that all these people have loved them because there's a Father in Heaven who lived inside of them. You guys may never get to see that. It's okay. We're not doing it for results. We're doing it out of love and obedience. He never called you to results. He only called you to obedience. He promised results. He guaranteed them. But He didn't call you to them. He called you to obedience. Jesus said the greatest love that you can have is this, that you would lay down your life. And then He demonstrated it by actually laying His physical life down on a cross. But before He did that, He laid His life down over and over and over again for people. Showing them what it was to be loved even people who He knew would take advantage and use Him. He laid His life down for them. He gets down and washes their feet. Knowing full well He's about to be deceived, betrayed. He's about to be abandoned. John's going to be at the cross, and yet John won't even give him something to drink when he's thirsty. It says a guy went and got him something and gave him sour wine. His friend's going to be there. And we give John all the credit. Well, John made it to the cross. And you know what? That's awesome that John made it to the cross. But I believe also John was an opportunity for the devil to come and try to get Jesus to take up offense because as he's laying there, hanging there, dying on a cross, I promise you the enemy's talking into his ear. He's your friend. He's your best friend. He's the one that you love and that knows that you love him more than anybody else and you're thirsty and he won't even get you a drink. Some friend he is. Just trying to get Jesus to take up for himself and say, how could you, John? after everything that I did for you, and you're going to sit here and watch me bleed and hang, and you won't even get me something to drink? But he doesn't do that. Takes what's, what's offered to him, looks out, and I believe looks straight at John along with the Romans, along with the Jews, and says, Father, forgive them. Forgive him, Father. He doesn't know what he's doing. And say, how could you use me this way, John? You were all about being my friend when I was multiplying food and when I was healing the sick and when you were in a boat and you were scared. You came running and woke me up. Not, so, not the same now, huh? He doesn't do that. And He's never called us to do that. He's never called you to evaluate whether or not it was worth it to love somebody. It's always worth it. And if you're gauging whether it was worth it or not, it's not real love because now you're saying that there's a meter that tells whether or not what I did was worth it. Pure love doesn't have any motive. There's no way to tell if it was worth it or not. It just loves for the sake of loving. Oh, I, you know, I, tr- I, I tried that. You know, I tried to love them. You don't try loving. You either do or you don't. God, I thank You that we have a covenant with You I thank You for this understanding of this first step of the walls of blood and what that meant and how You fulfilled every promise that was made that the curse of the covenant could be upon You so that the blessing of the covenant could become be upon us and that You would actually send Your Son Jesus to actually suffer the curse of the law and fulfill and redeem humanity and take my place and bring about all the curse upon Him so that I could take His place and enjoy the blessing of covenant with You, Father. God, I ask that that we would see each other the way that You see us, God. That we would actually commit our lives to people the way You committed Your life to us. 
God, not just out of convenience or because of something we need or want, but out of love. I thank You for that. I thank You for who we are in Jesus. For all we have in You. And for who You are for us. God, I ask that we would be able to just see You at work in our lives. Changing us, molding us, shaping us. The Holy Spirit would be so live and real and speaking and leading and guiding us into all truth the way that You said He would. I thank You for that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.